Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week I talk with Eva Holland. Holland is a freelance writer and editor based in Canada's Yukon Territory. She writes for a lot of different publications, including Vela Magazine and SB Nation Longform. She is the co-editor of World Hum, a website devoted to the best travel stories on the internet. 2013 was a great year for Holland. She had pieces from Vela Magazine listed as notable in both Best American Essays and Best American Sports Writing. She's written two stories for SB Nation Longform that were aggregated by the longform.org site. One focused on the handlers who helped sled dog racers in the 1,000-mile Yukon quest. The other story is called Wilderness Women and is about women who go to Alaska to compete in one of the wildest and strangest competitions ever. But first, we're going to talk to her about her story, Chasing Alexander Supertramp. The story looks at the increasing number of people who make the pilgrimage to the bus where Christopher McCandless of Into the Wild fame died. The hike through the Alaskan wilderness to that bus includes a dangerous crossing of the Teklanika River and continues to strand hikers on a regular basis and sometimes even claim lives. As usual, we've linked to several of Holland's stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast, Eva. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the Alexander Supertramp uh, story, Chasing Alexander Supertramp. Um, why, did, why did you want to write that story? Well, I'd been hearing for a few years about, about uh, the people I call the McCandless Pilgrims in the story, these kids that um, they're mostly young that try to hike to the bus where uh, Chris McCandless died in Into the Wild. It's, uh, it's a bit of a risky trip. Well, it can be a really risky trip, depending on conditions. And uh, almost every summer it seemed like I was hearing news reports about people being rescued. And so I don't remember what, at some point last spring, it occurred to me that they'd be an interesting group to write about. I've never been that sort of fascinated by McCandless myself, but, but I was fascinated by the people that were fascinated by him, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, you you talk a little bit about in the story about your kind of your own. Um, you talk about that in the story about how you've never really been fascinated by him, but maybe you understand him a little bit because you've also done this kind of where you've gone out into the wilderness type thing. Yeah, it's funny. I felt like I should be a fan because I I can sympathize with the idea of of wanting to sort of get away from normal life. I mean, obviously, I quit my job and became a freelance writer and moved to the Yukon, so I have. I have some things in common with, with Chris McCandless, I guess, but I was, I was never able to sort of fully get behind his philosophy and, and how far he took it. You said you quit your job. What did, what did you do before you became a freelance writer? Uh, my one kind of grown-up day job, um, so I, I studied history. I have a master's in history, and um, after grad school, I got a job in my hometown of Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada, doing... Um, professional historical research, like for a private consultancy. So mostly, um, 
mostly we did research for lawyers working on First Nations land claims cases in Canada. So we would go to the archives and go into the old treaties and, and old documents and, and look up what actually happened by then back then for these court cases. That's really in- interesting. I'm, I'm curious, did that help you? Um, does that help you as a reporter? Kind of having gone into the, you know, searching out stuff in archives, um, you know, in, in many ways it's very similar to going out and, and finding information from people. Yeah, I think it helps in some ways. I still feel really new to reporting. I For a long time when I started writing, I was mostly doing first-person travel stuff, which isn't really nuts and bolts reporting in the same way. So I think it helps. Um, for sure, when I do historical stories, it helps because I'm comfortable in the archives. Um, but the idea of organizing material and, and, and making lists of questions and sort of, you know, continuing to pull string, um, I'm pretty comfortable with sort of research methods like that, and I think that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, you you mentioned that you kind of um, had something in common with McCandless. Um, do do you feel like that that gave you some insight into like the people that you wanted to write about? I hope so. Honestly, I think it was doing the trip that that helped me. I I went into it thinking these people were kind of nuts to and and I think meeting them and interviewing them and. And, well, as, you know, spoiler alert, watching some of them get into some pretty serious trouble in the story um, sort of made them seem more real to me and, and made me more understanding, although I still don't think it's a good idea to try to cross that river and visit the bus if you're not prepared. Um, it, the whole experience of reporting the story made me more understanding of the phenomenon. There, You, you mentioned uh, there's a scene in the story that really shows the danger uh, that these, these hikers or pilgrims, or, or whatever you want to call them, face when they when they hike out to the bus, um, and that hap- and that and that was when that group that you followed crossed uh, the Teklanika River. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, so I I had initially just planned to hike. I wasn't going to go to the bus because I didn't feel safe crossing the river alone because um, the water was quite high. I'd asked around when I got to the area, and so my plan was just to hike down to the river, which is sort of the main obstacle. And, and look at it, be able to describe it well in my story. It's sort of the crux of the whole, the whole problem is this river. And, uh, and I hoped I might run into some hikers along the way, but I just had no idea. And I did run into a group of five, and I hiked with them for a couple hours until we got to the river. And then I was going to watch them cross. They had given me permission to photograph them and take video for my story. And, um, and then two of, them, two of them went across first and, and with some difficulty made it across okay. And then the next three tried to cross, and um, all three of them were knocked off their feet and swept downstream. Two of them got out relatively quickly, but one of them was in the water for a really long time. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, maybe 10 minutes, uh, maybe a, a mile of river that he was in the, in the water for. I'm not sure. It was pretty, pretty hectic, but um, the, the problem is the, the river is really fast-moving, and the water is really cold, and the air, once you get out of the river, is really cold, and so... Uh, we were concerned that he would drown, and even if he didn't drown, that he would die of hypothermia, and that was a pretty real possibility for a, a few minutes there. That I think that scene also illustrates another point that journalists face sometimes when they're when they're witnessing something bad happen, and that's do you keep your distance and just be the reporter and watch, or do you kind of jump in and try and help? Um, what went through your mind as, as you were watching this happen? I guess from a pers- from a, a human being standpoint, but also from a reporter standpoint. Yeah, I mean it was it was um, it was terrifying, and uh, 
I didn't start to really think about how it would impact the story again until later, but I was, I was filming this happening and I made the decision to stop filming when things started getting bad. And my editor later said, you know, oh, she kept filming. And I, I just didn't feel, I guess I don't have the like photojournalist killer instinct. I didn't feel that it would be right. I, uh, I just felt like the situation was spiraling out of control and, and, and I wanted to have my hands free for one thing. Um, so I, I got I I sort of abandoned all pretense of objective reporter mode and and got involved in trying to get Rick out of the river and and then I thought about it a lot later how how that changed the story because obviously I became personally invested in it in a way that I hadn't planned on um, but I'm not sure what I could have could have done differently I mean I couldn't have just stood there and watched it's uh, I was I was the only person on the on the town side of the river at that point everybody else got out on the far side. So if somebody had needed to go for a rescue, uh, it would have been me. Um, so it was just one of those things that happens, I guess, but I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, thinking about how that changes the story and, and my role. And I actually spent most of the hike back by myself after he'd gotten out of the river, more or less safely thinking about, you know, if I ever would have written anything again, if he'd died, um, which was kind of a dark, dark place to be in for a few hours hiking back alone. You also mentioned in the story this this um, kind of thought that you had uh, this this wondering of whether or not they were going to cross that river no matter what because they knew you were there watching. Yeah, I wondered about that. Um, I didn't know they didn't. Nobody even to me when we got to the river, it didn't look like something I wanted to wade out into. It was it was running fast and and cold and at least waist deep, um, and uh, they didn't even talk about not crossing. And I wasn't sure if that was because they were shy about expressing doubts among themselves because some of the group was more gung ho than others, or if you know me standing there with a camera was affecting their behavior. Um, they didn't even seem to consider turning back. Um, and I just wondered what role I may have played in that or not. And and I thought about saying that they shouldn't go. Uh, but again, I didn't think that was my role. I wasn't a member of the group. And I, and I wanted the photos of them crossing. So I never said, hey, guys, maybe you shouldn't do this. And, mm. and nobody did. Yeah. Did you, um, did, I mean, uh, did you think about saying the, something like, you don't have to do this for me type of thing? I'm curious. No, I, I didn't. I, um... I sort of didn't start to wonder what role I might have played in their decision-making until afterwards. Um, so it never occurred to me to... I, I, thought, I think I thought about saying, like, are you sure you want to do this? But I didn't, I didn't think about referencing myself. Uh, you talked with them afterwards, right? Yeah, we actually we keep in touch. And they're, they're, uh, did they talk about getting to the... Did they get to the bus? They did not get to the bus. No, they, uh, they, um, after they got out of the river, they set up camp and, um, they were pretty beat up. Um, one of them had torn his rotator cuff trying to, trying to catch hold of branches to stop himself going downstream. And, um, the one Rick obviously was, you know, hypothermic and he, uh, he didn't feel normal again for like a week. He told me he had sort of numbness in his fingers and toes for days. Um, so they didn't, they didn't try to press on to the bus. They, they crossed back over the next day with some help from some hunters who had, um, Amphibious ATVs. Uh, towards the end of the story, you have that section where you where you actually interviewed Chris McCandless's parents. Um, 
I'm curious about that in that it seems like they've probably done so many interviews. Um, or maybe I, I'm mistaken, but what was that like to talk with them? It was really interesting. Yeah, uh, we did sort of a conference call, the three of us, and um, <clears throat> it came up kind of out of the blue. I hadn't, I hadn't been sure about approaching the family. I didn't want to... I'm, I'm probably overly overly, not overly shy, I'm pretty shy about approaching people that are, you know, grieving or that have, that have lost somebody and, and pestering them to answer my questions. Um, but, uh, but the photo editor reached out to them to get permission to use Chris's photos from the bus, and then they sort of offered to be interviewed. Um, this is basically how it went, I think. So it was interesting to talk to them. I don't know if they had done interviews about the Pilgrim phenomenon before, and I wanted to be very careful about how I asked them about it because I didn't want them to feel like I was blaming them in any way um, for, you know, promoting Chris and promoting his journey. And it's you know, obviously it's the continued awareness of, of Into the Wild that sends these kids back there. And, and the, the parents were really keen to point out that they don't try to encourage anybody to go to the bus. And if they, if they get inquiries, they try to tell people, you know, get a guide, get a pack raft, do it right, do it safely. Uh, because... Um, one one young woman has died trying to reach the bus, and um, sort of a terrible, terrible irony that people are trying to make a pilgrimage to this site where this young man died, and they're risking their lives to do it. Yeah, and you write about you write about that girl in the story as well. Yeah, Claire. I um that was that was one of those sec- that was one of the sections I was most proud of. Um, in, it's one of those things that doesn't appear in the story, what went into getting that, you know, um, obviously the, the kids, the kids that I saw get into trouble, that just sort of fell into my lap. But, um, the, the young man, so, so Claire and, uh, and Etienne, um, tried to go to the bus in, I believe 2010. And, uh, she drowned while, while her friend essentially tried to save her and, um, he wasn't able to, and he never spoke to anyone about it. He never, the Alaskan media at the time never even got his name, just his nationality and his age, which they actually reported incorrectly. And uh, he never gave an interview about it. He never told anyone his side of the story. Um, so Claire's name was out there, but his name wasn't out there. And um, I was able to find him and convince him to talk to me for the first time, um, which was really, really cool and felt really... It was cool to earn his trust and, and to get the blessing of Claire's family to sort of tell their story in a bit more detail for the first time. How did you find him? Um, he lives in Whitehorse, <laughs> <laughs> here with me. So I, uh, I didn't even know where to start to find him. I, I had Claire's name. I thought I could contact her family, but I didn't, you know, contact his family and be like, hey, do you happen to know where I could find the young man who watched your daughter die? Like, seemed fairly dreadful. Um, so I was thinking about how to go about that, and I was hiking here at home in the Yukon just before I went to the bus. And uh, we, my friends and I met up with some other, some other folks at the campfire that night on this hiking trip. And this Australian guy said, hey, I, I hear you're going to the bus. And I said, yep. And he said, uh, my friend, you know, watched his friend die there. And I said, you know that guy? <laughs> and it turned out he was, you know, he lives a few blocks away from me. Um, so there was sort of a process of getting in touch with him through his friend and convincing him to trust me and and uh, and then he decided he was ready to talk. So that was that was pretty cool. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you ever do you have any desire to actually get to the bus itself? 
I'm curious. I'd be curious. I, um, I went, originally I planned on going, um, and then it was when I arrived at Denali in September that, um, that uh, everybody told me, don't try to cross right now. So then I, I reshuffled my plans. But I, I'd be curious. I don't, um, uh, I'm not much of a risk taker. <laughs> Crossing that river is pretty risky. Um, but I'd be curious to go sometime mm-hmm. if I could find a safe way to do it. Right. And it seems like amphibious vehicles are the safest way. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Or a helicopter. Or a helicopter. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. There's um, the, you know, Krakauer famously crossed on sort of a cable using climbing gear in the book when he originally visited the bus, mm-hmm. but that cable is gone now. Oh. So the only way is uh, uh, an amphibious ATV called an Argo or a, a pack raft. People use pack rafts sometimes if you know how to maneuver a pack raft in fast-moving water um, or on foot or by helicopter. Uh, can you talk about where the piece was published? Because that was probably the first time I'd ever read anything on that website. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it was published on a website called Sky on AOL, and it's an AOL-affiliated weather site. And uh, I think that was the first kind of long narrative reported piece they'd ever published. Um, uh, so what happened there is I know the editor. The editor is a longtime editor of mine, uh, Jim Benning, who, who's my editor at worldhum.com, which is um, an online travel magazine where I kind of got started. And I was telling him I had this story idea. I had been pitching it to some big magazines. They hadn't been saying yes. And he said, well, I want it. And I said, Jim you publish, like, mostly, you know, slideshows of crazy weather events and stuff. Like, it's a pretty photo-heavy site. It's mostly, you know, um, and, they, you know, they do a lot of stuff about space and Commander Hatfield and not just weather but sort of the planet and how we interact with it, um, but mostly photo-centric and sort of shorter pieces. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, the design team has been talking about wanting to do a, a snowfall sort of thing, and this seems like it fits, you know, it's, it's about interacting with the planet and trying to get out, you know, into the wild. And, and this river, this, this natural element is a big part of the, the story. Um, he said, I want it and I'll, I'll pay for it. <laughs> so, so I said, okay. And, um, and he got his design team to do this cool custom template. And, uh, and, uh, and I went out and reported the story and wrote it for him. And yeah, it'll probably be the, the first and last uh, long form narrative piece on, on AOL's weather site. Well, that's cool. Um, we are uh, we're going to take a short break. Um, we'll be back with Eva Holland, uh, and we'll talk about uh, some of your SB Nation stuff and, and maybe reporting in general. Cool. Uh, this is Gangry the Podcast. We'll be right back. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. 
Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. This is Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm here with Eva Holland, a freelance writer and editor based in Canada's Yukon Territory. Uh, can you talk about your story, uh, Wilderness Women, which was published in SB Nation uh, long form? Yeah, so um, that one came about in kind of a funny way. I had heard about this event a couple a couple years ago. Um, it's called the Alaska Wilderness Woman Contest, and it's sort of a semi-tongue-in-cheek a uh, competition for women to prove that they would make like proper Alaskan wifely material. And so it's in this small town called Talkeetna. It's just south of Denali National Park. And uh, and women come from, from outside the town every year in December for this, this competition, and they chop wood and carry water and drive a snow machine and shoot a target and make a sandwich for a man. And it's sort of a sort of a tongue-in-cheek athletic event slash, you know, pageant sort of thing. I don't know. If, there's nothing really pageanty about it other than the premise that you're trying to prove yourself as a, as a wife, potential wife. Um, so I decided to enter and do it as a first-person sports story for SB Nation long form, and, and Glenn Stout and the crew over there were game, which was really cool because it's not your typical sports story, obviously. What made you decide to actually do it as that first person, kind of this um, immersion journalism type thing, instead of uh, doing a more straight type piece on it? Um, I thought it would be fun, and I and I met the qualifications of being a... Uh, you had to be single to enter. So, and, uh, so I thought, I thought it would be fun to, to do it that way. Um, I, you know, when I first heard about the event, I wasn't so much even planning on on writing about it as just going down with a bunch of friends and, and, and entering. So um, so I always thought of it as something I would want to do rather than just report on. What uh, So uh, tell me about uh, kind of your experience there and, and, and the story itself. Did it turn out how you thought it would? I got crushed. <laughs> I didn't expect to get crushed. I'm, I'm a reasonably athletic person, but um, that first – so they – I guess to save time, because there's limited daylight, they, um, they eliminate almost everybody after the first round, and the first round is the water carry. So I think there was 45 of us that entered, and you have to um, you line up at a start line, they do it in heats of four, and you have to run about 100, 100 meters with, um, with empty buckets, and then you exchange the buckets for full ones and, and run back, because you can't run back because you're carrying 10 gallons of water which is about 100 pounds, I think. And so it's sort of a slow shuffle back, and you get a 10-second time penalty for every inch of water you spill from your buckets. They're marked. And so, um, yeah, only five people advanced, only the top five fastest times advanced out of the 45 of us from those heats. So I didn't make the cut. I didn't come all that close to making the cut, I don't think. I was maybe top third. Um, I did all right, but it was hard. It was hard to... that. 100 yards of carrying 10 gallons of water in your palms was pretty intense, actually. <laughs> After you were eliminated, did you find that just having signed up for the event kind of helped the people you were talking to open up a little bit more? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, people are, I find people are pretty open at a place like that. Um, I find Alaskans in particular really open in general. Um, and in this instance, everybody was just kind of milling around and chatting with strangers and drinking. And so it was a pretty easy, easy place to make conversation. But um, I think it helped. And uh, I think it probably was for the best in the end that I was eliminated early because it would have been really hard to continue to compete and do any semblance of reporting. So unless I was going to win the whole thing, I I wouldn't have had much of a story if I'd kept on competing, I don't think. But uh, Are you going to go back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back next year with a bigger... I only uh, In the end, only one of my friends came with me this year. There was sort of a few others who dropped out at the last minute. I think it'd be really fun to go back with like a carload or two of, of women next year and just have a, have a fun weekend. You, uh, you also wrote a story about, um, the Yukon quest uh, for SB nation. Yeah. Uh, and particularly the handlers, uh, not necessarily, not necessarily, um, the sled dog teams, but the, the people kind of helped them out. Can you talk a little bit about that story? Yeah. So that was my, that was the 2013 Yukon quest. And, it was my third year covering the race. And so two years earlier, I had gone in as a volunteer and kind of embedded at one of the remote checkpoints and written about that. And then the year before, I had actually been hired by the Quest itself to do their Twitter and Facebook, um, do all the social media updates for them. And so I knew the race well, and I, I wasn't really interested in writing about the front runners or you know who was going to win or lose. And, and that's also just a really hard thing to pitch ahead of time with with dog mushing because you never know who's going to scratch out of the race entirely and then you know if if your musher scratches you don't you don't have a story um it's not even like you can write about them losing because they just they you know they pack up and they go home immediately after they scratch usually yeah didn't the top or the, the expected the guy who was expected to win he scratched right uh, yeah, a, a few people scratched that year. Lance Mackey would have been one of the favorites. He's, you know, the, the greatest musher of all time, basically. And he scratched halfway through, and that was a that was a big shock to the race that year. So, um, so you decided not to focus on on the mushers, right? Which... My experience doing the social media the year before had meant I was traveling with kind of the main quest team, the veterinarians, the handlers, the volunteers, the organizers, and. Um, you know, the official photographers, there's sort of this traveling circus of, of people that follow this race doing their various tasks. And um, I wanted to write about that instead, because I thought that was really interesting, that there's this sort of traveling community that follows this race. And I, I think I said in the story, it's sort of their own endurance adventure race. Um, and so I ended up narrowing in on the handlers in particular, um, partly because there's a lot of rules about about people like the veterinarians and what they can and can't say to media. Um, and, uh, and the, yeah, it was a lot of fun focusing on kind of the inner workings of the race. You said you've, uh, you're relatively new to reporting. Um, mm-hmm. How long have you been doing this now? I have been a full-time freelance writer for six years, but I'm mostly until basically late 2011, early 2012, I was doing travel stuff almost exclusively and blogging and first-person essays, and I didn't consider any of that really reporting. I think I did my first reported magazine feature story around December 2011, and I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, And so it feels like it's just been 
kind of two years, two years and a bit of learning how to do this, this type of writing that I'm doing now. What's been the most difficult thing for you to maybe pick up? It's hard to make myself ask people hard questions. I have to have to work on that. Um, as you could probably tell when I was talking about, you know, the super tramp story earlier, I'm not, I'm not comfortable confronting people with, you know, their grief or that sort of thing. Um, I, uh, I'm not naturally uh, a super outgoing person or an aggressive person, really. And so asking the tough questions requires me to sort of work up my nerve a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm working on that. And I have to, you know, the, the better I get at it, the, the easier it is in a way, because I, I don't feel, I feel like I'm going to do right by the people that are trusting me with their answers if I can write a good story. Whereas when, in the beginning when I was just floundering around, you know, you're asking people to share this stuff with you and, and you don't know if you're actually going to get it right as a result, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, why, why did you decide to start writing? I had always wanted to be a writer since I was a really little kid and um, I hadn't really thought I could do it for a living. I, uh, I didn't really, I didn't grow up around magazines. I didn't really know about nonfiction. I sort of thought writing was poetry and short stories and novels. Um, or sort of nuts and bolts journalism, like, you know, newspaper beat reporting. I didn't know about this sort of creative nonfiction middle ground, really. Or at least I didn't know that you could get paid to do it. I thought there was, you know, some, some, some of the more really creative, creative nonfiction stuff that goes in journals and you don't make any money. Um, and so I had always written on the side, and uh, it was in grad school that I started uh, doing some freelance travel writing for my hometown paper because I was going to school in England, in northern England. And then kind of twigged to the idea that there's this whole world of like narrative nonfiction out there that actually, I mean, relative to poetry, actually pays pretty well. <laughs> um, so I... I didn't drop out of grad school, but I dropped, I dropped my plans to, to keep, I was, had planned to do the academic route all the way to, you know, professordom. Um, and I, I dropped my plans to do a PhD and came home and started trying to freelance. What, uh, I'm, I'm curious, um, does, does being out in the Yukon and out where you're at, does that give you access to some stories that most people aren't going to be able to get? I hope so. I think so. That's, that was part of the reason why I moved here. Um, you know, I, I love it here, and, I've, and it's a really cool community, but I moved here fairly strategically as a, as a, you know, emerging travel writer because it's expensive to travel a lot, and so I thought it would be good to move someplace where I would have a lot to write about close to home that people would be interested in reading. Um, and so I moved here thinking I would, you know, sell a ton of travel stories about Alaska and the Yukon, and that worked pretty well, but it's also, as I move into this kind of long-form stuff. It's, it's pretty rich for that, too. Um, Alaska is amazing um, and full of crazy stories. And, and the Yukon and the whole, the whole North right now is, you know, coming into focus for people in terms of a lot of geopolitical stuff and climate stuff. And, and so I, I think it's a good place to be. And I think, I hope I can convince people that I would have better contacts and more insight than a writer they would fly in from elsewhere. I understand you've got a story coming out soon. Um, I, can you talk about it? Yeah, I've got um, part of a whole package of stuff, but one, one feature story for, uh, for Pacific Standard. Um, it's, uh, I won't say too much. It's going to be out in early April, and it is, speaking of you know, rich Alaskan 
stories. It is a, a crime story, my first, my first attempt at crime writing, really, uh, about a young, charismatic militia leader in Alaska who was accused of conspiracy to commit mass murder of government officials. Um, so that was interesting to work on. And it comes out in early April uh, on Pacific Standard. So hopefully people will read it when it comes out. Well, great. I'm looking forward to reading it. Eva, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Eva Holland. Holland is a freelance writer and editor based in Canada's Yukon Territory. She writes for a lot of different publications, including Vila Magazine and SB Nation Longform. She is the co-editor of World Hum, a website devoted to the best travel stories on the Internet. We've linked to several of her stories on our website. That's at gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.